Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Rock, you won't mind one more time taking mankind apart, will you? Matter of fact, the Rock will lay the smack down on his candy ass. In 1999, just days before WrestleMania 15, where The Rock was set to take on Stone Cold Steve Austin for the World Heavyweight Championship, one of the most memorable moments in all of wrestling took place. As a build-up to the match, the Texas Rattlesnake came crashing through the curtain of Monday Night Raw in a Coors Light beer truck to let the corporation know that he was starting the celebration early. The corporation was made up of the McMahon family, in particular, Vince. And their crown jewel was Dwayne The Rock Johnson, a.k.a. the People's Champ. To the delight of screaming fans, Austin drove right up to the ring and jumped on top of the truck and shouted out a message to The Rock. Stone Cold Steve Austin is going to take his ass to Philadelphia, check right in to the SmackDown Hotel, Roll right in to room 316 and burn that son of a bitch to the ground. Stone Cold then jumped down from the truck, unrolled a hose, and began spraying the rock with beer. This stunt was one of the highlights of a time between 1997 and 2002 when professional wrestling broke boundaries in ways like never before. Fans were treated to risque programming, adult-oriented content, and larger-than-life superstars like Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, Bret Hart, The Undertaker, and Shawn Michaels. At the heart of it, though, was a ratings war, and it fueled the perfect storm of wrestling greatness. For wrestling fans, It was as if their favorite sport was at war with itself, and it was playing out in real time on TV every Monday night. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and on this episode of the History of the 90s, we're taking a look back at professional wrestling's Attitude Era. To understand why wrestling was so popular in the 90s, we first have to look back at what wrestling was like in the 80s. Before the Attitude Era, there was, of course, the Golden Age. That's when Hulk Hogan and WrestleMania ruled the wrestling world, thanks to the wisdom of Vince McMahon. He was the genius who saw wrestling not just as a sport, but as sports entertainment. As head of the World Wrestling Federation, McMahon transformed wrestling and took it mainstream. In the mid-80s, he created a fully national wrestling program and produced the Saturday Night Main Event, which was the first nationally televised wrestling program in prime time since 1955. Soon, wrestlers like Hulk Hogan... And what you gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Randy the Macho Man Savage... You made a lot of promises to the Macho Man, didn't you? Promises that you didn't keep. Ric Flair... You're talking to... Woo! Wheel of Dealing! Limousine right! Son of a gun! Andre the Giant... I'm not afraid 
I'm not afraid, and I'm part of Santa. And Rowdy Roddy Piper. You do not throw rocks at a man who's got a machine gun! Became household names. And yet, by the early 90s, the excitement around wrestling had begun to die down. And the WWF fell into what was known as the lean years. This is because fans had grown bored of the comic book style wrestling of the 80s, with stars like Hulk Hogan, who told kids to train, say your prayers, and take your vitamins. They were tired of jacked up superheroes who destroyed all the villains who dared challenge them. Plus, some fans had been turned off by a steroid scandal that caused a lot of bad press for the industry and shook the foundation of the WWF. In 1993, Vince McMahon was charged with routinely obtaining anabolic steroids for his stable of wrestlers and employing a shady Pennsylvania doctor to prescribe the drugs which were shipped to WWF headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. At McMahon's trial, the prosecution presented evidence and testimony that steroid use had been pervasive in professional wrestling throughout the 1980s. Meantime, the defense argued that steroid use was an individual matter and not a conspiracy within the WWF. The trial included testimony from 11 wrestlers, including an uncommonly subdued Hulk Hogan. He told the court that he had taken steroids for 13 years and that he routinely picked them up with his fan mail and his paycheck at WWF headquarters. But, he said, McMahon never encouraged him to take drugs. Only one wrestler, Kevin Nails Watchhalls, testified that McMahon personally pressured him to use steroids. But McMahon's defense attorney painted Nails as a disgruntled revenge seeker. In the end, McMahon was acquitted of all charges. Following the bad press from the trial and the waning interest in the sport, Vince McMahon and others in the wrestling world realized that something had to change. It would take a few years, but a new stable of young and talented wrestlers would soon emerge to overshadow the superstars of the golden age, and along the way, change the face of pro wrestling forever. The first step into this new era began on January 11, 1993. That's when the WWF, which would eventually become the WWE, launched its now flagship show, Monday Night Raw. It aired on the USA Network as a replacement for primetime wrestling with a brand new format. Until then, most pro wrestling shows aired on Saturdays and were made up of a series of pre-recorded highlights from matches that happened days or weeks earlier. But Monday Night Raw was different. It was live to tape, and it showed not just highlights, but the entire match as it happened. The one-hour debut of Raw took place at New York's Manhattan Center and kicked off with a match between the 500-pound Yokozuna and Coco Beware. The announcers for the night were Vince McMahon, Macho Man Randy Savage, and comedian Rob Bartlett. They took turns throughout the show reminding viewers that Raw is uncooked, uncut, and uncensored. For the first few years, Raw virtually owned the market. 
but that would change. On September 4, 1995, WWF competitor World Championship Wrestling, which was owned by Ted Turner's Turner Broadcasting, launched a new show that would go head-to-head with Monday Night Raw. The WCW's Monday Nitro ran on TNT at the exact same time as Raw. The debut episode was held at the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's right, in a shopping mall and not an arena. The broadcast team of Eric Bischoff, Steve Mongo McMichael and Bobby Heenan opened the show. The highlight of the night was when wrestler Lex Luger made a surprise appearance. You see, Luger was a WWF superstar. In fact, he had appeared at WWF SummerSlam just the week before. He had jumped ship to WCW, and he wouldn't be the only one. Soon, a slew of former WWF wrestlers were lured over to the other side. Suddenly, fans had to pick between the WWF and the WCW. It's almost it's almost like, are you a Coke guy or are you a Pepsi guy? Are you a WWE guy or are you a WCW guy? That's Kevin Mickey. He's an associate producer at Sportsnet and a lifelong wrestling fan. Mickey says this rivalry between the WWF and WCW is what made 90s wrestling so amazing. And on Monday night, before the era of PVRs, there wasn't a lot of a ch- there wasn't a lot of choice. You either tuned into WWF or you tuned into WCW. And if you're tuned into WCW, you say, "I love the NWO. I love Hulk Hogan." If you're tuning into the WWF, you say, "I love Stone Cold Steve Austin. I love The Rock." I think it's because there was that brand warfare. There was these two distinct talent rosters of larger-than-life personalities that connected with audiences on so many levels. That's what made it so popular. That's what made me want to keep tuning in to see my favorite wrestlers, to see why my favorite wrestlers were going to make my show the better show that week. The Monday Night Wars, as they became known, really started to heat up when two former WWF stars popped up on the WCW's Monday Nitro. Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, who had gone by the names Diesel and Razor Ramon, went to WCW as free agents. But a storyline was created by WCW that Vince McMahon had sent them there to start a fight. The duo invaded WCW matches and programming and claimed more troops were on the way, cryptically hinting at a third man. This absolutely captivated viewers. It was a sly move by Eric Bischoff, a former wrestling announcer who was running WCW for Turner Broadcasting. Author David Schumacher wrote about the Monday Night Wars in The Ringer, describing it this way. On Monday nights, we'd gather in front of the TV as real-time test markets, flipping back and forth between shows to see which grabbed our attention, sometimes toggling so quickly the TV became a baby-oiled strobe light. We tallied imaginary scorecards. Sting in the rafters is plus one for WCW. Austin riding in on a beer truck is plus one for WWF. The shows were cross-referential. Just imagine Jay Leno calling out David Letterman or The Voice doing American Idol parody sketches. It was the most compelling television show of all time. 
and it didn't take long for the WCW to body slam the WWF in the ratings. On June 17, 1996, Monday Nitro won the Battle of the Monday Night Ratings for the first time. It would go on to win the ratings war for the next 84 weeks in a row. The success was thanks in part to the New World Order storyline. After weeks of teasing, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall finally revealed their third man. And it was none other than former WWF superstar Hulk Hogan. Up until then, Hulk was known for being a heroic all-American figure. But this time, he was a bad guy. Hulk as a heel had people buzzing about Monday Nitro, making it must-see programming for wrestling fans. If you're not super familiar with the term, you should know that superstars that fans love to hate are called heels. When you hear that someone is a babyface, that means they're a fan favorite. So Hogan went from babyface to heel, from WWF to WCW. And soon, the WCW roster included a ton of former WWF stars, like Ric Flair, Sting, and Randy Savage. And by the end of 1997, the company had made more money in one year than any wrestling company ever. It would top that the next year by reportedly earning $55 million. To compete with the massive WCW success, the WWF launched what became known as the Attitude Era. The thing was, the WCW had to adhere to the standards of TBS and TNT, which carried its programming. So it was limited as to how far it could go in terms of sex and violence. But the WWF on USA Network was under no such restrictions, and they decided to make a radical shift and push the envelope as far as it could go. It went from being a family-friendly PG-rated show to racy, edgy, and sometimes vulgar programming. Here's Kevin Mickey. WWE did not hold back when it came to pushing the boundaries, creating risque television. We, a term was created by one of the writers at the time, Vince Russo, who was writing for WWF, called Crash Television, where anything could happen at any moment. Good example, you're in a big match, uh, it just seems like it's coming down to the wire and then a lot of the times a referee would get knocked out and then you'd get a run in from the back and your favorite wrestler would run in and he'd beat up somebody or he'd come in and get beat up and then another guy would come in and then another guy would come in. At the forefront of the Attitude Era was Stone Cold Steve Austin, a beer-guzzling, middle-finger-flipping, potty-mouth miscreant. But don't be mistaken, he was the good guy. Stone Cold as the anti-hero was easily WWF's biggest star. To quote the man himself, hell yeah. Fans of the wrestler regularly hoisted signs that read Austin 316. If you're wondering, the 316 comes from verse John 316 in the Bible. Jake the Snake Roberts used it in a religious promo against him prior to the King of the Ring 1996. So Stone Cold took it over after beating him. In addition to the beer truck stunt, wrestling fans remember fondly when Austin interrupted a segment with boxer Mike Tyson during the buildup to 1998's WrestleMania. Tyson, who had recently been banned from boxing after biting off the tip of Evander Holyfield's ear, 
was on the WWF's Monday Night Raw show, which was by then called Raw is War. He was just about to announce that he would serve as a guest referee at WrestleMania when he was interrupted by the glass-shattering sound that marked Stone Cold's entrance. He came charging into the ring and challenged the boxer to a fight. I respect what you've done in the boxing world, but Jesus Christ, son, when you step in this ring, you're messing with Stone Cold Steve Austin, and that's something you don't do. Pandemonium ensued in the ring when the two started brawling. A whole mess of people jumped on Stone Cold to restrain him, while Tyson stood in the corner looking on in amazement. Afterward, Vince McMahon announced that Tyson accepted the challenge. They didn't end up fighting, though. Instead, Tyson refereed the title bout between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Shawn Michaels. Tyson was the special enforcer referee on the outside who would only get involved if needed. Before the match, Michaels claimed that Iron Mike was part of his faction, D-Generation X. So fans were shocked when Tyson counted out Michaels after a Stone Cold stunner. In a press conference after the match, Stone Cold and Tyson declared they were in it together all along. Even though Iron Mike kept calling his new buddy Cold Stone instead of Stone Cold. Tyson was reportedly paid between four and six million dollars for the appearances he did for the WWF in 1998, which was a huge rating boost for the WWF as it struggled to claw its way back to number one. Now, Stone Cold Steve Austin's persona on Monday Night Raw was initially as a babyface. And in the old days, wrestlers would remain either a face or a heel for most of their careers. But during the Attitude Era, for the first time, it was common for talent to make drastic character turns and change from face to heel or vice versa a half dozen times or more. And that's what Austin did. Fans were shook when he turned heel during WrestleMania 17 in 2001. We're not going to talk about that just yet, but don't worry, we'll get to it in a little bit. Now, one of the highest rated segments on Monday Night Raw happened in September 1999. And it was thanks to the unique tag team of The Rock and Mankind. The former rivals who spent many months beating each other senseless with steel chairs decided to team up against their common enemies. And in this particular episode, Mankind said he wanted to do something special for his tag team partner. He then proceeded to make a presentation of This Is Your Life, a spoof of a 1950s TV show that took surprise guests through a retrospective of their lives. And that's what Mankind did. He trotted out figures from Rock's past, including a teacher, a coach, and an ex-girlfriend. And in classic Rock fashion, he ripped them apart. Mankind even gave the People's Champion his own sock puppet named Rocco, and dropped confetti from the ceiling. The Rock, well, he didn't crack, playing the part of an unaffected superstar to a T, hinting at the acting career that lay ahead. So far, we've been talking about the men's superstars, but it wasn't just the male wrestlers that got fans excited in the Attitude Era. There was also a roster of incredibly popular female wrestlers, including Sunny, Sable, China and Jacqueline. 
I don't want to get into it too much, but let's just say most of their storylines haven't aged very well. An article on Money.com says the women, known as divas, were almost always auxiliary characters. Girlfriends, cardholders, and simple-minded, revenge-driven Jezebels written into the script to enhance the men's storylines. Bikini contests, bra and panties matches, and titles being decided in pudding were the norm. Sable was having a bikini contest with another wrestler called Jacqueline, and Sable's bikini was just black handprints on her breasts. And people went insane for that at the time. That was that was very risque television. It was something that you really hadn't seen. And also it was live, making it even more insane. And people really couldn't get enough of that. In one super cringy plotline billed as hot lesbian action, two scantily clad babes sashayed around the ring in a will they or won't they ratings grab. And during another sleazy gimmick, Degeneration X pranked their boss, Vince McMahon, by appearing to sexually assault McMahon's daughter, Stephanie, in a dressing room. It turned out it wasn't Stephanie, but another woman who looked like her. It's a disturbing storyline on so many levels, but especially if you consider the fact that it was Stephanie's dad, Vince, as chairman and CEO of the WWF, who supervised all storylines. So let's talk about Vince McMahon for a little bit. He took over the reins of his father's wrestling company in the 1970s and transformed it from a regional operation into the WWF, a global phenomenon. Initially, he was a TV commentator and worked behind the scenes on the business side of things. His ownership of the WWF wasn't talked about publicly. But in the 90s, McMahon, as the CEO of WWF, became a character himself. He was a six-foot-one bombastic villain with a helmet of lacquered hair and a booming voice. Mr. McMahon, as a character, was cemented in 1997 after something that became known as the Montreal Screwjob, one of the most talked-about wrestling moments of all time. So I understand you wrestling fans know this story intimately. Much has been written and said about it, but non-wrestling fans may not know it. So bear with me. It goes like this. Bret the Hitman Hart, one of the WWF's longtime superstars, who hails from a family dynasty of wrestlers based in Calgary, Alberta, had made the decision to sign on with the WCW after Vince McMahon told him he could no longer afford to fulfill his contract. Hart was the champ at the time, and wrestling tradition has it that a wrestler going to another organization gives up his title before he leaves by losing his final match. Hart didn't want to do that, though. He wanted to go out as a champ, hand over the belt on his own terms. He definitely didn't want to lose to his longtime arch-rival Shawn Michaels in front of a Canadian crowd. So after much discussion, Vince McMahon finally agreed. Hart went into his final match in Montreal at the Survivor Series against Shawn Michaels with the understanding that he would not be losing the match. Instead, the match would end in a schmoz when a bunch of wrestlers storm the ring and the ref has to call things off. Hart would then hand over the belt the next day at a news conference. 
Kevin Mickey says that's not what happened. Vince McMahon conspired him and just two or three other very close confidants to screw Brett out of the title. When Shawn Michaels, who was wrestling for the title, got Brett in a conspicuous spot, Vince came down to the side of the ring and just said, ring the bell. They rang the bell and then Shawn and everyone else got out of there. And Brett was just stripped of the title right there without Brett knowing. Everything's predetermined in wrestling. Brett didn't know this was predetermined. According to a Vice article in 2017, McMahon was concerned that if Hart didn't lose the title in Montreal, he could potentially show up on WCW's flagship Monday night program Nitro the next night with the WWF title and make a mockery of the company. All he had to assure him that wouldn't happen was Hart's word. After the match, Hart went on a rampage. He spit on Vince McMahon, destroyed the ringside set, before standing in the middle of the ring and drawing the letters WCW with his fingers. Afterward, he went backstage, took off his ring gear, showered, dressed, tossed his knee brace in his bag, and then approached McMahon again. Hart hit McMahon with an uppercut, knocking him out cold. Remember, this was all real. It wasn't kayfabe industry lingo for the usual predetermined storylines associated with professional wrestling. Hart told Sports Illustrated in 2014, it was the most beautiful uppercut punch you could ever imagine. Things were made even worse when Vince McMahon famously said to commentator Jim Ross, Vince McMahon didn't screw Bret Hart, Bret Hart screwed Bret. Here's Kevin Mickey. Vince was a real life POS like he was a, he he people hated this guy and then it shone through so brilliantly on television that you hated him just as much on television you wanted to pay to see Vince McMahon get his ass kicked you wanted to tune in to see Stone Cold Steve Austin kick him in the gut and then drop him with a stunner that's what you wanted to see that's what I wanted to see because I love Bret Hart and he screwed Bret I still hate it today This incident is discussed and debated to this day, with most wrestling fans taking a fairly firm stance on who they side with in the controversy. Some even think the screw job itself was a work. Regardless, what it did for sure was cement McMahon as a full-time heel. He would go on to form the corporation stable of wrestlers that included his son Shane, The Rock and Sergeant Slaughter, who would later be replaced by Shawn Michaels. Their main purpose was to enforce McMahon's authority and punish anyone who defied. And they took on wrestlers like Stone Cold Steve Austin and D-Generation X. Thanks to its roster of superstars and its new commitment to being as outrageous as possible, the WWF was eventually able to win the ratings war. By 1998, the WWF caught and passed WCW in the ratings, merchandise revenue, and show attendance. As the WCW's performers aged and its talent development efforts lagged, fans often called it wheelchair wrestling. The WWF began to regularly trounce them in the ratings. The nail in the coffin for WCW happened in January 1999 in something called the Mick Foley incident. 
that night, the WWF was running a pre-taped Raw is War, featuring Mick Foley, aka Mankind, taking on The Rock in a title match. Over on WCW, Nitro was airing live, and during the broadcast, announcer Tony Schiavone revealed the results of the WWF title match. He told everyone watching that Foley would beat The Rock. Schiavone did this a lot, he says at the direction of his big boss, Eric Bischoff. The idea was it would stop viewers from switching away to watch the WWF if they already knew the results. But legend has it, on that night in January 1999, when Schiavone revealed the results of the Foley Rock match, more than 600,000 homes switched networks to watch Raw over Nitro. That night, Raw scored a 5.7 rating, while Nitro scored a 5.0. And it was the last time the WCW ever saw a rating that high. Later that year, in September 1999, as the WCW continued to struggle, Eric Bischoff was fired. Then, the WCW stole the WWF's top writer, Vince Russo, in an effort to save the sinking ship. But he was soon fired too. Both Russo and Bischoff were then hired back. And there was a disastrous storyline where actor David Arquette won the WCW title for 12 days. Things were a total mess at WCW. The company was on borrowed time. The final death blow came in March 2001, when the WCW's parent company, Time Warner, was purchased by AOL. Jamie Kellner, the new CEO of Turner Broadcasting, decided to pull the plug, taking pro wrestling off the air, eliminating WCW's most valuable asset, its time slot. The cancellation of the WCW marked an end of an era at Turner Broadcasting, which Ted Turner had built in part on the strength of professional wrestling. Turner began showing WCW matches on his first TV station in Atlanta in the 1970s. He later used wrestling to attract viewers to TBS and TNT. But with high production costs and expensive contracts for wrestlers, the WCW was no longer economically viable, losing a reported $80 million in the year 2000. A spokesperson from TBS said they decided to drop WCW because professional wrestling in its current incarnation wasn't consistent with the upscale brands they had built at TNT and TBS. Immediately, rumors began to swirl that the WWF was interested in buying WCW, and on March 23, 2001, the rumors were confirmed. The WWF had purchased the WCW, ending the intense 18-year rivalry between the two companies. And they got it for a steal. Like a vulture picking at a carcass, Vince McMahon swooped in and purchased the IP, video library, and 25 wrestler contracts for a mere $3 million. To put that in perspective, WWF gross revenue in 1999 was $250 million. Hulk Hogan's 1998 WCW signing bonus was $2 million. McMahon had purchased the entire WCW legacy for what amounted to just a drop in the bucket. WWF CEO Linda McMahon told reporters during a conference call, 
The WWF has been a rival organization to the WCW for quite some time. With the new infusion of stars and the cross-branded storylines, this does nothing but raise the specter potential for us. We're very pleased to have come to an agreement to purchase that brand. Three days after the purchase was announced, the final Monday Nitro aired, marking the end of WCW as an entity. And then just a few weeks later at WrestleMania 17, some say the Attitude Era officially ended. The Rattlesnake was facing Dwayne The Rock Johnson in the WWF Championship in front of 67,000 people at the Reliant Astrodome in Houston, Texas. The arch rivals had been battling it out since debuting in the WWF in 1996 in one of wrestling's greatest feuds of all time. In WrestleMania 17, they went toe-to-toe for almost 30 minutes, trading huge moves. The match could have gone either way. But then Vince McMahon came down to ringside and handed Stone Cold a steel chair after The Rock had survived a stunner. Austin battered The Rock with the chair, eventually capturing the WWF Championship for the sixth time. Austin and McMahon then shocked fans even further by shaking hands, then sharing a beer in the middle of the ring. And with that, Stone Cold turned heel by joining forces with his nemesis, Vince McMahon. WrestleMania 17 went on to become the highest grossing pay-per-view event in WWF history, and the main event between Austin and The Rock was directly responsible for the event's massive success. There's always the Mount Rushmore argument in wrestling. Who are, who's your Mount Rushmore? And the conversation always starts, The Rock, Stone Cold, they're on Mount Rushmore, and then up for debate is the final two spots. Do you put in Hulk Hogan? Do you put in Chris Jericho? Do you put in Macho Man Randy Savage, Roddy Piper? You can have a fantastic argument about who else gets to go in, but the argument starts with Stone Cold and The Rock. Those are the two biggest stars in the history of professional wrestling. I should note that there was a third professional wrestling promotion in the 90s, Extreme Championship Wrestling, or ECW. It was a gritty operation out of Philadelphia and was known for its realistic characters and storylines. And they had an incredibly loyal and cult-like fan base. ECW, with its ultra-violent brand of wrestling, pushed boundaries as far as you could go in the ring. And it actually massively influenced the product put out by the WWF and WCW. Extreme wrestling fans were a different breed to the fans content with the Monday Night War. No two wrestlers pushed those boundaries more than ECW's Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. You never knew what to expect in one of their matches. The only thing you could rely on, that it was going to end in a bloody mess. But ECW didn't have the mainstream appeal it needed to be profitable and officially closed its doors on April 4th, 2001 after filing for bankruptcy. At the time of its closing, the promotion owed more than $500,000 to at least 40 workers. So, of course, Vince McMahon and the WWF acquired the ECW just a couple of weeks after it had swallowed up the WCW. In what seemed like a blink of an eye, it went from being three major wrestling promotions to just one. The WWF was the last man standing. 
The WWF has, of course, carried on. It changed its name to WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, in 2002 after losing a long battle with the World Wildlife Fund over the WWF initials. And Monday Night Raw is still on the air. In fact, it's one of the longest-running episodic weekly TV shows in history. Forbes reported in January 2018 that Raw consistently ranks in the top three cable entertainment programs on Monday nights. And it's propelled USA Network to being the number one cable entertainment network on Monday nights for the past 12 years. Raw averages more viewers than any cable network in primetime and delivers more viewers than all sports except the NFL. In addition, each week, WWE programming is rated among the most socially active television shows, with more than 850 million followers on social media. WWE sees its programming trend on Twitter every week of the year. In 2017, WWE had more social engagement on Facebook and Instagram than other hit programs like Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, and The Voice. That said, wrestling popularity today is nothing compared to what it was in the 90s at the height of the Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars. Here's Kevin Mickey. WWF was drawing 7 million people to watch Monday Night Raw in the in the 90s. And at the same time, WCW might be drawing like five, four or five million people. So you've got over 10 million people watching wrestling at any time in the 90s and now Monday Night Raw is lucky to draw, lucky to draw three and a half million people. In fact, the Monday Night Raw episode that aired on December 23rd, 2019, set a new low for ratings. It was the least watched episode of the show since the lean years in the early 90s, averaging well under two million viewers across the three hour duration. With this dip in popularity, it's not surprising that many fans are clamoring for a return of the Attitude Era. Nowadays, anytime the WWE produces anything that is even vaguely reminiscent of the coarse, crude days of the late 90s, the internet wrestling community is lit up with discussions about whether the Attitude Era will make a comeback. Fans long for days of the Attitude Era again. They that's that's why you see these days WWE trot out old stars like Stone Cold Steve Austin so often because fans still go wild. It was only a couple months ago that Stone Cold came out and whenever his music hits, the fans go absolutely insane. Still, he hasn't wrestled since 2003 and yet he is still the you say he's still the biggest star in wrestling. And he's not wrestling. He'll come in, he'll give somebody a Stone Cold Steve Hunter, the fan, stunner, the fans will lose their minds, and then he'll leave. And people will say, man, wasn't wrestling great in the 90s? People still eat it up. They love it. But there's very little chance the WWE will return to the ways of the Attitude Era for one main reason. In 2008, the WWE officially went PG. After spending most of its existence under the TV-14 rating, the company decided to shift to a more family-oriented product that caters to the masses. The new PG rating and cleaner programming has brought in a lot of new viewers and better advertisers and sponsors, like Snickers, KFC, and Cricket Wireless. 
And according to Sponsorship.com, WWE posted a 30% year-over-year increase in sponsorship revenue in 2017. That's four times more than 2010. Critics complain that with the shift, WWE is now corny and too kid-friendly. But don't expect things to change anytime soon. The problem with WWF now is if you move back to TV 14, you're losing a you're going to lose a lot of different sponsors and they're a publicly held company. So they can't do that. They they have to respect a lot of the sponsors that they have. Um, and I always say that WWE has the biggest demographic in the world, too. They're targeting anybody from two to 82 and everyone in between. So you don't want to alienate any part of your demographic just to satiate a part of the audience that will say, oh yeah, I remember this. It's believed that Triple H, the current COO of the WWE, will take over Vince McMahon's job as CEO in the not so distant future. And Triple H, who is a father of three, has made it clear that he is committed to a PG rating. Before we go, I want to make a request to any wrestling fans out there listening to this episode. We've done our best to capture the most important aspects of 90s wrestling and the Attitude Era. But if we missed anything and you're not happy with what you heard, well, I'm going to let D-Generation X take over. We got two words for you! I'm kidding, of course. Didn't mean to be a heel. If you're not happy, please send us emails. We want to be the people's champ, after all. If you want to reach out to me, you can also find me on Twitter at 1990s History. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And yes, please send me emails at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for a link to my guest, Kevin Mickey. Thanks to him for sharing his knowledge and passion about 90s wrestling. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. And you can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. And if you're new to the show, that's where you can go back and listen to some of our older episodes. This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy the Killa Kinzora, and Dila the Diva Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by babyface Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 